welcome to this Forthright Radio for August 4th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Alexander Hinton, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology, Director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, and UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention at Rutgers University. He is the author of over a dozen books, including the award-winning Why Did They Kill? Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide, Man or Monster? The Trial of a Khmer Rouge Torturer, and The Justice Facade, Trials of Transition in Cambodia. His new book is It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., published by NYU Press. In it, he writes that, quote, This book is centered around my experience of teaching during Trump's presidency at one of the most diverse universities in the country, Rutgers. The students in my classes on genocide, mass violence, and human rights, many of whom experience racism regularly, considered the questions that were being asked throughout the country after Charlottesville. How do you ascertain the truth in the face of lies and distortions of the sort Trump made by claiming that there were, quote, very fine people on both sides, end quote, at Charlottesville? Who are the white power extremists who suddenly became visible in Trump's USA, and how do they fit into the country's history of systemic white supremacy? Given Trump's seeming support and the white genocide frame that drives many of these actors— Could it happen here? If so, how can genocide and atrocity crimes be prevented? And what can we do as individuals and as a society? End of the quote. And now that the House subcommittee investigating the January 6, 2021 invasion of the U.S. Capitol began a week ago on July 28th, and with the news that the very next day after the testimony of four of the Capitol Police, who, outnumbered many times over, valiantly held off the mob long enough for the members of Congress and their staff to retreat to safety, and told of their harrowing experience that day, the wounds they suffered and continue to suffer months later, a fourth member of the Capitol Police has succumbed to the psychological wounds and died by suicide. And some members of the press mocked their testimony. And the vast majority of the members of the Republican Party in Congress attempted to gaslight the country, dismissing the danger of that day. It's a good idea to examine the questions raised in Professor Hinton's book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Alexander Hinton. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. You were an expert witness in the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia genocide trial of Khmer Rouge brother number two, Nguyen Chia. He was ultimately convicted of charges of genocide. We are recording this interview on August 3rd, 2021, and it will be broadcast on August 4th, which is the anniversary of his death in 2019. And as it happens, August 3rd is also the second anniversary of the mass shooting at the Walmart in El Paso, Texas, in which 24 people were killed and 24 others injured. In each case, and we could name other cases, the perpetrators asserted their moral justifications for the killings. Now, your book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S. explores elements of genocide and how it can arise. Would you please briefly share with us about your experiences in the case of Cambodia and what can be learned from it? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. And it's a big one. It has a lot of different pieces. So maybe we can move through it slowly. In terms of writing the book, the origin point, as you mentioned, in some ways comes from being an expert witness at the trial of brother number two in Cambodia. 
And at the time, then candidate Trump was on the campaign trail. And I noticed that some of the language right at the beginning, there are resonances in terms of demonizing groups, especially out groups. Then candidate Trump on the campaign trail would sometimes invoke, and he actually continues to invoke this into the present, even after he lost the election. He's done it recently to invoke a parable of a snake, for example. And he would frame the parable, which is ultimately based on a song written in the 1960s by Al Wilson, but originally it was based on an Aesop fable. He would again say this is a story about immigration. And basically, the story goes that there's a snake that a quote-unquote tender-hearted woman finds one day, and she brings the snake back to her home to nurse it back to health. And then she comes back one day, and the snake's healthy again, and the snake bites her. And she goes, why did you bite me? Your, your bite is poisonous. I'm going to die. And the snake said, well, you should know better. I'm a snake. So again, this sort of idea that there is a, a nature to the snake, again, is framed in this case as a story about immigration. So the idea is they're non-white others are like snakes. They're crossing the boundary of the home or by analogy, the nation, and it's poisonous and it's going to kill us. So this parable spoke directly to the notion of what sometimes is called white genocide and the great replacement theory, linking to the great connection you made. And I'm glad you made that to the anniversary this week on August 3rd. And then on August 4th, as you said, Nguyen Gia, brother number two, died. And then actually Tony Morrison died right at the same time as well. So this Patrick Crucius, who was a shooter on August 3rd, actually directly invoked the same language and the great replacement thesis in a manifesto he left called An Inconvenient Truth. And there he said, the country being invaded by immigrants. We have to get rid of these people so that our country will continue to survive. And he talked about an Hispanic invasion. So this language circulated. And if you remember in 2018, during the midterms, we had all the language about caravans, borders, so on and so forth. But back in 2016, when I was testifying, candidate Trump was on the campaign trail. He would often talk about Islamic terrorism, as well as the threat of Mexican gangs, gang leaders and rapists, so on and so forth. So this has been a consistent thread throughout. And just to loop around to the link to the Khmer Rouge, they also, like Stalin, like Mao, and other totalitarian regimes, use the language of enemies of the people. And it was really frightening to many of us that studied these things when that language began to be used and invoked by President Trump and some of his supporters. But that language at the time was very common for the Khmer Rouge, who talked about hidden enemies burrowing from within, needed to be eradicated and swept clean, is what they sometimes said. Candidate Trump then was talking about the snake. The Khmer Rouge would talk about the crocodile, which referred to Vietnam and its allies within the country, who were the Hindus burrowing from within, as well as ethnic Vietnamese in the country. And just sort of looping back to when you brought up my testimony, I was testifying in particular on the charge of genocide. And genocide has a very specific meaning. It's the intent to destroy an ethnic, racial, national, or religious group. And those protected groups are the product of political bargaining right after the Holocaust by a number of governments. Some didn't want cultural genocide included because of colonialism and imperialism. Some regimes didn't want political groups included, like the Soviet Union, which had carried out had targeted political groups. So there's a bunch of political brokering. So the common understanding of genocide that many of us have and that informed scholars in general is it's the intent to destroy any group because of who they are. But the United Nations has this very specific definition uh, that requires proof of intent. So within that, in the tribunal where I was testifying, there were charges of genocide against a group of Muslim Joms and also ethnic Vietnamese. And virtually all of the ethnic Vietnamese in Cambodia were killed or expelled from the country during the regime. So this language of the crocodile, and there were other derogatory terminology that was used to refer to them was also a present. You know, your question is a great one, and it really loops us around to the anniversary today, the grim anniversary. Before we continue, let's get it out there that you do acknowledge in your book that we live in a post-genocidal nation. In fact, this program is being produced on land that was taken by force from those who originally lived here. And that's true for land that any of our listeners are on in North or South America. And in spite of tremendous effort on the part of European settler colonialists, some of the indigenous peoples did 
could survive. So I can imagine the idea that this constituted genocide is being challenged by some. In fact, I've engaged in very heated discussions in the past with those who say that it wasn't genocide. The discussion ended when I was accused of being politically correct, which I consider a term of honor and distinction. If my politics are correct, then yeah, that's fine with me. But anyway, how how do you respond to such challenges? (laughs) That's a really important point and brings up a few different things. Just sort of have an aside on the political correctness trope, which now sometimes is recycled with the notion of cancel culture and the current attacks on critical race theory, which are just kind of a bugaboo that's set up. And really, there's not a lot of deep thinking when people invoke terms like that name calling. And, you know, that's obviously true on both sides of the aisle. But in general, when people dismiss something with a caricature phrase, it's not useful and kind of sad that we get we sort of have our political debates in general using these caricatures of other people. I actually wrote a op-ed in the online journal Sapiens before the 2020 election, which actually linked notions of political correctness to long-standing white power extremist tropes about things like cultural Marxism. This history of the use of this term and the way it was often deployed at the time, then the candidate Trump obviously became President Trump. So President Trump constantly talked about political correctness, but he often did in the context of invoking and promoting white nationalist themes. The larger point you're talking about goes straight to the heart of the book and the title, It Can Happen Here. What's the message of the book? Well, there it is. And you you talk about one of the key threads. So the book's written using literary strategies. Parts of it are set in the classroom. As I work through with my students, we work through what was going on in terms of the rise of white power extremism in the U.S. and shootings like the Crucius Walmart shooting, Charlottesville, Tree of Life. And the book actually goes all the way up to the summer of 2020 with a protest and anticipates what happened at the Capitol. And indeed, I would say what continues to have some alarming things are going on in the U.S. now that that should worry us all. But a big portion of the book, especially at the beginning, traces back the history of the U.S. and sort of argues, well, within the scholarly community, even if your experience debating people is obviously in a different context, in the scholarly community, it's not very controversial to say that The country was founded with settler colonialism, as you mentioned. What is settler colonialism? Well, in the context of North America especially, right, you need to get land. What do you do to get that land? Well, you have to remove the people who are on it. And part of the way that people engage in denial, and this is true in genocide denial in general, Nguyen and his Khmer Rouge colleagues engaged in genocide denial by blaming everything on the crocodile, Vietnam. But the difficult thing is that mix sort of partial truth with outright lies. So it's easy to look at the experience. When we talk about indigenous peoples, Native Americans, First Nations, Canada, what have you, that term actually condenses incredible diversity. Because obviously there, there wasn't one group of indigenous people. There are many different groups. Those groups lived in different places. Those groups had different histories. And those groups had different experiences of contact. The experience of some of those groups clearly was genocide. And there's a large scholarship that demonstrates this. Other groups, and again, it depends how you define genocide, it's uncontroversial to say were forcibly relocated. Some people would call that ethnic cleansing, taken away and then got pushed out eventually, trail of tears, so on and so forth, to what was then the western frontier in Oklahoma. That was the border at the time. And then their land was taken away. So that's how I think people were able to try and make a claim. No, you know, it didn't happen because, in fact, you can always point to the experience of a group that wasn't the sort of standardized image of complete destruction of the group through physical force, which is the sort of common way understanding of what genocide is, and see these nuanced histories. But again, for the academic community, that's not an issue. So if we go back to settler colonialism, you get the land. Well, what do you have to do on the land, especially if you're growing tobacco and then later cotton? Among other things, well, you've got to work the land. So what do you do in terms of working the land? And this was true uh, more broadly. It's important to situate the U.S., experience in the context of global history. So enslavement was taking place in the Caribbean, 
many other places all over the globe where you had people being taken from Africa and brought over to work the land. And there was very little care about their treatment. The main goal was to extract resources from the land to get a profit from that. And so we had this sort of twin engine of history. Genocide took place. But in the scholarly community, it's important as well to understand, and this is true in the legal community, that genocide is part of a cluster of what are referred to as atrocity crimes. Atrocity crimes include ethnic cleansing, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And the reason those are clustered together is that you have a sort of series of events that take place that can lead to one or more. It's important to understand that genocide can take place along with crimes against humanity. And going back to Nu and Gia, brother number two of the Khmer Rouge, and just as a, a little bit of backstory for listeners who may not be familiar with Cambodian history, the Khmer Rouge rose to power sort of amid the ripples of the Vietnam War. Uh, they came to power in 1975, and they attempted to implement the most radical revolution in history. They immediately collectivized society, made everyone dress in black, cut their hair short, and everyone was supposed to become an ideal revolutionary citizen, and which was an, obviously an impossibility given that people were individuals with varied views. So then you began to have this campaign to root out the hidden enemies growing from within. And then they were toppled from power in 1979. So at the trial, they were actually, coming back to this issue of atrocity crimes, convicted of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Ethnic cleansing is a term in international law that's not as sort of entrenched. So you got the conviction. But the, the point is that if we go back to the experience of the enslaved and indigenous peoples, as well as different people of color who came in through different waves of migration or territorial conquest that took place, uh, you have a number of groups that may not have just experienced genocide, but some may have experienced crimes against humanity or ethnic cleansing. So the larger point is that if you go back to, through the history of the U.S. to its very origins, and again, I just want to make the point that this and other countries as well have had different historical experiences, but mass atrocities like this have taken place. Our history is littered with atrocity crimes of all sorts. I always like to say that as someone who studies the far right and the far left, right? Because the Khmer Rouge were a far left extremist group. In both cases, you can have really bad outcomes. And as someone who studies the Khmer Rouge and the different things that took place in the name of sort of moving society as quickly as possible towards communism, there are great things about the U.S. And this is what, despite this history, when we get the sort of moving back to the critical race theory, bugaboo, political correctness, cancel culture, so on and so forth. What's really sad is people often say, well, you know, critical race theory, that means that you hate the country. You know, there's nothing good about it. And the magazine article that sort of catalyzed a lot of this in the New York Times, the 1619 Project, it is written in a way that's fairly bleak, but it's written in a way that sort of makes this point that we've got to grapple with this history. If you think as us as individuals, to make an analogy, if we look back at our past, none of us have perfect, pure past. There's always bad mixed with the good. And a lot of people go into therapy or work through the past events, and they do that so they can move forward in a better way. So the way I like to think about it is there are great things about the U.S., but there's also this history that we have to confront and grapple with and accept if we're going to move forward. Otherwise, we like someone who hasn't really dealt with issues from the past. We're going to be stuck. So again, the book with the title, It Can Happen Here, is written in part to try and make this point so we can ensure that atrocity crimes don't take place in the future. We are speaking with Professor Alexander Hinton, and as he mentioned, his book is It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., Okay, so let's now focus on the white power aspect of this. And even though your book does focus on the U.S., throughout, you do demonstrate that white power is actually a global phenomenon, or at least an international phenomenon. Let's talk about the frame of white genocide, not just in the U.S., but as a global movement. And it occurred to me throughout your book 
that there's a great deal of projection that seems to be going on, whether it's things like white genocide. At some level, people have to be aware of the role of Europeans in genocide around the globe during the early capitalist and colonial period. And now that the situation is changing with immigration in particular from the European standpoint, but also the increasing demographics of quote-unquote former minorities in the United States, people of European background, some of them, fear that what they did to others will now or is now being done to them. That's my perception. So let's talk about the white genocide trope. And if you have any response to what I just said, please share it. Thank you again. Absolutely critical issues that you brought up. Like all your questions are speaking right to the heart of the key issues of the book. The quick answer is yes. And the question becomes, how do we get to the point where people are talking about white genocide to understand that, you have to go back and look at uh, U.S. history. And as you point out, global history, global history obviously is very complicated because you have lots of different micro histories that are unfolding in different ways. But again, global capitalism and imperialism and colonialism are key drivers that lead to there being similarities. But if we stick with the U.S., so the book speaks about connections that are global and how their resonances, continuities, interconnections, and exchange with people in Europe, Australia, South Africa, so on and so forth. Sort of the end of the quick story I'm going to tell, social media, as we all know, has dramatically catalyzed both the circulation and the ability to have communication among white power actors throughout the globe. That's something that in general has ramped up empowered white nationalism in the U.S. That's sort of the end of the longer story of white power extremism. So if we go back to the settling of the country, if you look at what was set up moving through the 1600s, obviously enslavement wasn't there at the beginning. People picked 1619, but actually at that time, the notion of race was still being formulated. And as it gets formulated into the notion of racism, which is a systematic attempt to label people in terms of skin pigmentation and to based on different caricatures of those, the skin pigmentation to say that people have attributes, those attributes enable them, legitimate treating them in certain sorts of way. So if we move forward through the 1600s, it's really only 1619s picked up because at that time, some enslaved Africans, the system of enslavement wasn't totally in place, arrived, were brought over to the U.S. in Jamestown. And again, the experience of Jamestown versus what was taking place when it's been in different places, it's also a little bit different. But if we go back to Jamestown, it wasn't until the end of the 1600s that you begin to have this systematic white power implemented in the U.S. So systemic white power, white supremacy, in general, and again, there are variations within the colonies, depending on where you are. But if we start with sort of the area near Jamestown, as you begin to have waves of conquest that move forward, it was predominantly patriarchal. So that gender element was there and was premised on what came to be scientific racism, which is this ideology that based on an arbitrary characteristic, in this case, skin pigmentation, legitimates the enslavement of people as being inferior, lesser. For any listeners who are interested in looking at this, there's a Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia that is online and it goes over a number of these racist caricatures. I use it when I teach. It basically looks at this ideology that therefore legitimated enslavement moving forward. So what we had then moving through history was a system of white supremacy that legitimated the disempowerment of non-whites uh, that moved forward, as we know, through 1776 into the Civil War. So we got this, this sort of rupture in it at that time. But as we all know, and as being discussed now all the time, and as an aside, it's a little bit ironic that if it were not for the Trump presidency, we likely wouldn't be talking about these issues. And probably discussions of structural racism would be at the forefront in the way that they are. So this is one ironic sort of outcome of the Trump administration. So at the Civil War, 
you had this rupture in the system, but of course it was re-implemented in many places, but most especially in the South through Jim Crow. We had this moment of reconstruction. What's interesting about that moment of reconstruction is it was a moment that scholars and practitioners sometimes call transitional justice, which is societies who've gone through a difficult time throughout the globe. Cambodia is one of those, and I've studied transitional justice in Cambodia extensively, uh, but we think of the South African Truth Commission. Canada just had one for First Nations. It's taken place all over the globe. Nuremberg trials after the Holocaust. But the Reconstruction was an attempt in the U.S., a first attempt at transitional justice. And of course, it famously collapsed. Whereas before, in terms of white power militias and violence, we had slave patrols, right? There were operative before the Civil War and different vigilante methods of implementing the system of white supremacy. Then afterwards, we get the first of several waves of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, one of which emerges in the context of Reconstruction. There are these waves, they rise up and Reconstruction fizzles out, and then the KKK fades away, largely. But so we had this second system. So by the time we get to the Civil Rights Movement, and you think about U.S. history, if we take it back to early 1600s into the 1960s, and we think about how many years have passed then, you know, so I don't know the, the calculation, but 80% of the history has been a history of white supremacy, right? That's been in place. And so really, we're, we're really trying to grapple and move forward and move past this into the present. But with the key thing that then happened after the civil rights movement, and this is where we begin to get the idea of white genocide, is we have the system has a strong rupture, as we all know. At that point, white power continues, and there are lots of domains as discussions of structural racism highlight where the system continues. But what you get in the white power movement is a pretty strong reformulation, whereas before it was directed towards implementing and maintaining a system of white supremacy in terms of its ideology and its rhetorics. We had the second wave of the KKK after World War One into the 1920s. At one point, we had tens of thousands of KKK marching in D.C., uh, this was the peak in the 1920s of the KKK as a movement. That was the second wave. But we get the third wave at this juncture after the civil rights movement. But the, the way of talking about white power moves from one of supremacy, which becomes a sort of implicit uh, form of discourse, to one of subjugation and victimization. And in this case, it becomes whites are the victims of, for example, uh, enforced segregation or anti-miscegenation laws so on and so forth, political correctness to return to the trope that you mentioned before. And as we move into the 1970s, there was a professor turned neo-Nazi, William Pierce, who published a book, and I won't say its title because uh, no need to give it extra publicity, that was called The Bible of the Racist Right. But it basically is a story that first due to gun control of a I guess you could say a, a revolutionary who joins this group and they topple the government of the U.S. They kill all, non, all non-whites. Jews are often depicted as the orchestrating demon in a lot of these rhetorics. They kill all Jews. They go on and kill all non-whites in the U.S. And they have the Day of the Rope, which is where they hang race traitors or people in terms of miscegenation, different things, uh, all race traders. And so when we saw at the Capitol insurrection, those nooses going up, a lot of people thought this was a reference to this book I'm talking about that's been read by millions of people across the globe. So that was the first real formulation of this idea of white genocide. There's another guy who creates a manifesto that codifies this uh, in the 1980s and the 1990s. And white genocide becomes this key trope in the white power movement. These discourses, in some sense, of race suicide go back further in history. So it's picking up on a theme that wasn't the foregrounded theme. If we move into the present to sort of wrap up, we have this idea of white genocide that broadly circulates and now converges with the notion of demographic replacement. Whites will be a minority, which is a kind of an absurd thing because, for example, Irish used to be regarded as a different race. Italians used to be regarded as a different race. So the notion of Whiteness itself is this fluid category that changes through time, and it's also a social construct, but we can leave that to the side. But you have this idea of demographic replacement, and it converges exactly with what you noted, which is the great replacement theory in Europe, which was in response 
in particular, it again has a history, but and sort of in the 2010s, it emerged as a prominent idea in response to what was perceived as massive the threat posed by immigration from uh, especially the Middle East at the time amid the different conflicts going on there, including Syria. So that idea then sort of dovetailed with this idea of white genocide. They resonate with each other. And it's important to know that these ideas directly informed the policy of the Trump administration. Stephen Miller, then President Trump's national security advisor of the Southern Poverty Law Center, got a trove of emails that showed him basically espousing these ideas of the Great Replacement. And there was an attempt to make this, at the foreground this in U.S. immigration policy. So these sort of abstract ideas that previously had been with more fringe actors in terms of white power extremism, but it also had continuities and linkages politically with the Southern strategy, suddenly were being implemented to some extent with U.S. immigration policy at the border and really white nationalist ideas more than in many, many years coalesced, crystallized and informed, you know, the presence that we, that we just had, which is really alarming. But these ideas haven't gone away with former President Trump. They're still with us and they still remain a great danger to us. You address the question using the analogy of starting a fire, asking what makes a man start a fire? And then how does that lead into thinking that your race that you identify with is in danger of being eliminated? And that is the fear that sincere people, I mean, I do trust the sincerity of the holders of this view. I think it's misguided. But if you believe that not only you as a person, but your children are going to get wiped out, then that leads you to a different moral consciousness than if you don't have that point of view. And it allows you to believe that violence, whether it's shooting people in a Walmart or not, is not only justified, but imperative. What can we do with that kind of belief system? particularly in a post-truth era. Well, I'm going to go for, we can still get at the truth, so I'm not going to buy into the post-truth era. There's something we get in the classroom. So I, I think we can get at the truth. The truth is linked to history. And the problem is, as you're referring to, we just went through a moment where the notion of alternative facts and the media being caricatured and dismissed is at the forefront. And I wrote another op-ed saying that the U.S. needs a truth commission that wouldn't go to 1619, but actually would go back to symbolically 1492. And we just look at white supremacy as it's you know, as informed U.S. society in many different ways through history. And again, I want to point out the great things about the country and the democratic system that we live in, even as it's really been challenged and threatened in a way that I've never seen before. And I think we, we continue to learn that almost every day, it seems like, with the different steps that were taken by the Trump administration to erode our checks and balances. And checks and balances are obviously one of the key buffers that exist to prevent genocide from taking place. And let me as well reiterate and agree with you fully that it's a big mistake to dismiss people's views because you disagree with them, right? That's absolutely true. The views of those who commit atrocities, the views of those who engage in white power extremist acts, as well as other forms of extremism, left and right. And again, I, I just want to make it clear that these ideas are on both sides uh, the fringes of both sides of the aisle, potentially. And as a little aside, I, I talk about the title of the book, It Can Happen Here, echoes and is taken from a novel by Sinclair Lewis, who was writing in the 1930s as Hitler was rising to power, as the U.S. began to get the silver shirts, which were a brown shirt, an analog at the time. But Huey Long was the person he was worried about who was on the far left. And that was sort of the character in that novel, uh, was modeled on that. So again, we, you know, we have to be careful on both sides. But right now, the big danger has come from far-right extremism, and that's what we need to look at. So the question that you, you bring me uh, was one of the central questions with which the book 
begin. So one of the questions is, how can this take place in the U.S.? Another is what motivates someone to participate in far-right extremist movement? Uh, and then the third one is, can it happen here? And the it being atrocity crimes, the most extreme of which is genocide and sort of echoing that different forms of authoritarianism. So I mentioned, uh, as you brought up at the beginning, my testimony at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in 2016. The point at which I decided, okay, I'm going to write a book was really after Charlottesville. The time of Charlottesville, my professional organization, the American Ethnological Association, along with a number of others, history of sociology, said, look, we study this stuff, we teach this stuff, let's uh, have discussions in our classrooms about what just took place in Charlottesville. So I held a Charlottesville teach-in. What is a teach-in? I think of it as stepping behind the headlines to apply critical thinking, to understand the issues. And I should note that when I teach... I always say to the students, because of the content that we're doing, I don't want to know your opinions. You don't want to know my opinion. What we need to do together is to examine the issues, understand the issues on both sides, as you just uh, very well pointed out, and then to make come to our own opinions, but do that on our own. And, you know, I think people on the left and the right should have space to talk. But again, we're not talking about opinions, political opinions. We're talking of trying to understand what happened. So that's the way I conduct the classes. And in the book, one chapter is actually called Charlottesville Teach-In. And then I also discuss the teach-in I held after the Tree of Life attacks synagogue, Tree of Life synagogue by Robert Bowers, which is aimed very directly, obviously, at Jews. And then, as I mentioned, I talk about the Cruzius Walmart shooting. I work up through the George Floyd protests. And then I actually got the Capitol insurrection. I was able, because the book had been finished, though, to mention it in the preface. But in this teach-in at the time, there was a lot of discussion, you know, why does this take place? And the New York Times eventually wrote an article about a person, Tony Hoveder, trying to figure out why did he participate in Charlottesville? And the reporter couldn't figure it out and he ended his article, what makes a man start fires? And so that's a key trope I take up. And part of that path is precisely what we talked about before, white genocide. So why do people believe this? Well, we all have our beliefs, right? And it's key to understanding why we have the beliefs that we have and to acknowledge that other people have different beliefs that may lead that lead them to potentially do different things. But what we can do when we have an idea like white genocide is first and foremost, we have to understand it. And so with this discussion of Tony Hoveder, and the title of the article at the time was something like The Voice of Hate Next Door. And again, he was cast as a hater. We need to move away from saying, okay, there are those Charlottesville actors. Uh, there are those capital insurrectionists. They're a bunch of white supremacist haters, racist, bigots, what have you. That language is not helpful. There may at times certainly be a grain of truth to that in the sense that people have racist views, but to say they're racist turns them into what I refer to as the hater. And so we, we say, oh, it has nothing to do with us and our society. These are the bad apples. That's a bunch of, bunch of haters. The book talks about the importance of moving away from these caricatured understandings. And this, once we do that, we move away from sort of looking at the individual to looking at the larger society and the larger history that informs the events that took place. We always get, we got this after the Capitol insurrection, we got this after Charlottesville. We're going to get it again in the future. And we actually, we just got this during the hearings on the Hill uh, about the Capitol insurrection. This was asked directly in a question, but we got the language of this is not America. This is not us. This all brings forward this idea of exceptionalism. So the idea of exceptionalism, it's important to understand, you know, I think of it in three different ways that are interrelated. The first sort of conceptual blockage we have to facing the fact that it can happen here and that this is part of our legacy. It doesn't mean we're a bad country, but we need to understand this to move forward in a better way is the not us. This is not who we are. It has nothing to do with us. This is an exceptional event. Charlottesville was not exceptional in the book. That's one of the standing assumptions and starting points of it. It's something that emerges directly with a long history uh, in the U.S. It's not exceptional. It's more of a symptom of that history as opposed to being an exception. So we need to move away from the not us. 
as I just mentioned, in relationship to this guy, Tony Hoveter, who belonged to a neo-Nazi group. There's the not me, and the not me means, oh, they're a bunch of hater, racist, bigots, what have you, and it has nothing to do with me. They're the bad apples. We all live in a society that's been informed by this history that still today is, continues to be informed by structural racism. So we're implicated in some sense. doesn't mean we have to go feel guilty and personally responsible. We need to have acknowledgement of what happened. And ideally, all of us work together to make up for it in some sense. And this would circle back to the notion of transitional justice and its different forms, ranging from a truth commission to reparations and education memorials. There are lots of different things you can do. So we have the not us, the not me, and then that links into the title of the book. There's the not here. So if you think it's not us and if you think it's not me, well, that means it can't happen here, right? Because it's something that doesn't exist as a possibility because of those other two forms of denial. So the book argues we've got to get past the not us, the not me, and the not here. So that begins the journey that I took with my class. And I taught another class that actually looked specifically at insights from genocide and perpetrator motivation, applied it to white power extremism. And we looked at a number of different reasons. People join movements and the notion of grievance, for example, is something that's common to a broad range of social movements that exist on a broad range of issues. So issues of grievance, people who are suffering through economic hardship, people whose lives are going through issues and they look for a form of meaning, forms of explanation. Well, white power extremism provides a form of explanation. And that explanation needs to not just be dismissed and caricatured, it needs to be understood. It's only once it's understood that we can begin to actually get at the truth at it and assess it for what it is. Just like we have this false notion of demographic replacement. Demographic replacement's an easy idea to sort of think about, right? It's sort of, again, caricatured understanding. Oh, whites will be a minority. Well, if you just look at the history of the U.S., if you look at the way that the concept of whiteness has been fluid, how different groups who are excluded were then brought into it, you understand that it's a, a social construction. The whole notion of race is a social construction. So again, these are all things that I take up and discuss at length in the book. But one of the key insights in terms of explaining is to understand why people believe in white genocide, what white genocide is, how it provides meaning to people. And it's only through that sort of critical thinking that we can begin to, again, move better, move forward in a better way. I should just note that the other thing we did in the Charlottesville teach-in was to critically unpack then-President Trump's statements about Charlottesville and the notion that there were fine people on both sides. And just very briefly, so there's an entire chapter of the book written in dialogue, narrative form, set in the classroom. So there's a conversation with me and the students as we bounce through the different issues. But certainly there are people who, you know, advocates of the heritage and history argument who don't engage in far-right extremist violence. But the rally was called Unite the Right. The rally was organized by far-right extremists to advocate violence. The rally was not called the Heritage and History Rally. So the very origins of what took place in Charlottesville were explicitly formulated as far-right extremists. And it was so much so that groups that sometimes you can differentiate between far-right extremists, what became known as the alt-right, and then the alt-light. A lot of the alt-light groups pulled out of Charlottesville because they didn't want to be associated with the primary groups who were involved in the rally. Anyway, so it's a great question, and there are different sort of layers to it. But in terms of critical thinking and unpacking, to understand what happened in Charlottesville, we have to understand the different groups involved. We have to understand the history. And we have to look at what people said when they were organizing the rally. And that makes it very clear that there weren't fighting people on both sides. What there were is you had far-right extremists who had organized a rally at this key moment in U.S. history. Critical thinking is hard. It takes time. That's always the key thing. So post-truth, I'm still someone who believes we can critically think and unpack and understand why people do things. And it's that sort of understanding that, again, I, I reiterate this over and over again, enables us to move forward in a better way. And maybe this is uh, to loop around to Toni Morrison. I begin the book with the introduction, first chapter on the snake. It's called The Snake. The last chapter is called The Bird. And it takes up the importance of having dialogue, critical thinking, and it sort of echoes. It moves from talking about the El Paso shooting, Nguyen death, which took place the next day, but then Toni Morrison's death, and she was someone who believed in dialogue.
And part of that dialogue, just to reiterate the point, is listening to other people. In that penultimate chapter in the book, I talk about moral compass. And part of moral compass is, again, a term we use, often don't have a lot of depth to it. So I define it just kind of briefly as looking back, which means you understand how you got to this point historically. Looking around, which is you understand the context of the moment in which you are enmeshed and that you're looking at. Looking at, which means looking at those people that you're trying to understand or who do things uh, like engage in violence at Charlottesville and trying to not caricature them, but to understand who they are and how they came to have these beliefs. Looking beneath, which means trying to not move away from surface level understandings and look at that deep underground that generates the sorts of violence, if we're looking at Charlottesville, for example, that took place. And all of that together enables us to look ahead, to look forward. I was at uh, the Chautauqua Institution, which is a religious institution, for a thematic week that they hold on different issues. And the theme of that week was grace. And so at the center, central rows of moral compass, I put grace. Grace is a complicated idea, but uh, I'll just sort of leave it leave it there. Don't just leave it there, sir. <laughs> Go on with uh, <laughs> what grace is the center of the moral compass, but then you give the northeast, south, and west of discernment, orientation, perspective, and foresight. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time, but I'm glad we were able to get around to the moral compass because the earlier parts are somewhat discouraging in terms of uh, violent systems that lead to mass death. And I appreciate that you go into how we can go beyond that. You talk about the efforts of the United Nations. But very briefly, I want to push back a little on our situation that we find ourselves now. There's no doubt that there are those who, like yourself and perhaps myself, really struggle to have a sincere effort to understand the thinkings of others. But my experience is that we are in the, at the moment, the very, very slim minority, and that due to many factors such as control of the media, uh, etc., people are in echo chambers, they're in silos. And because of the experience around vaccinations, for example, with the COVID, I have moments of despair. And so if you can very briefly, we only have like 60 seconds left, respond to what I mean by post-truth. Not that truth doesn't exist or isn't approachable, but some people in their efforts to find truth get shunted off into uh, rabbit holes or wormholes, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, absolutely. And again, they do both on the left, far left, far right. We all do it, right? So I I tend to be a little more optimistic. I fully understand the dangers. Uh, You know, I look at technology as something that has incredible benefits and also incredible dangers. One of the negative aspects are these bubbles. So what do I do? Well, I may, you know, I make myself listen to independent media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, sometimes uh, even for the right shows, BBC. I try and get information from lots of different sources. I encourage my students to do the same. I tell uh, through my university, students can get both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for free. So I say you should be looking at both of those media sources and, again, trying to get different perspectives. So on the ground, for what do I do on the ground level? And teaching, you know, it's something in our classrooms that we can teach about. That's, you know, really unfortunate about the sort of caricature understanding of academia that's going on. Well, most of us are teaching, I can't speak for everyone, is critical thinking. And when I do that, as I said, I say no opinions. We do analysis in the classroom. And that's what most of the colleagues I know do as well. So that's sort of one that, you know, we have to teach people how, how to engage with social media. All of us need to move out of our bubbles. And I said, that's one strategy I have is looking at many different media sources and comparing them. But more broadly, I mean, if you want to go back to what we can do, I mean, I think I wrote this book because it tries to encourage this sort of deep thinking. If you want the book, 
that covers a lot of stuff that, again, is difficult to deal with. But maybe we can think of it as, you know, it's a it's sort of a therapeutic text because it's working through these issues to hopefully set up the stage where we can have both moral compass and the related ability to have moral imagination, which is what Toni Morrison espoused, to have dialogue, to understand other perspectives. Once we start doing that, and all of us have to do it on an individual level, and I encourage all of your listeners to go out and talk to people who have different political views. Don't begin at your points of disagreement. Look for points of convergence and agreement where you can begin to build a groundwork to have trust and to sort of move towards the more contentious issues. If you go straight for the issues you disagree with, you're just going to have a fight. That's what I do with relatives who have different political beliefs and others on a, on a personal level. For example, climate change, in some sense, they're many different people on the far left as well as the far right, uh, some evangelical Christian groups who really the environment's important to everybody. So some discussions can begin with that as just one small example. I'm so sorry. We are actually more than out of time at this point. But I I do want to thank you for your book and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. I think it is an encouraging step in the directions we need to come as a United States. Well, th- thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay. And I, w- I wish we- oh, there were so many other things I wanted to address with you, but nope. that's, that's why you write a book and not just talk for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And it's a book for critical thinking is what it's all about. So it's not a, it's not written like, you know, sort of tell it as it is. It's to generate thinking and talk and discussion. So, and your question, questions were fantastic. I really appreciate them. And I'm so glad you got El Paso. Maybe that's what you had in mind by picking this date. I was going to mention that if you didn't, you got it in there right at the beginning. Well, so that was perfect. I had no idea. I, that's one of the things I learned from your books. I I, I mean, obviously, I, I knew of it at the time, but I didn't put it together with this date, much less the death of Nguyen Chia. This is just how it works. Truth wants to find a way and it all comes together if you just stand out of the way and let it happen yeah. do the work yeah. do well, the work but well and thanks for your show i mean uh you know you're doing i, I looked over and uh wow you've got a, a great program that's running oh well thank you so much I, coming from you that means a lot all right well um no. i look forward to the rest of your work and thank you again can may i just share a, a quick quote from Ulysses S. Grant that really resonated with me, especially because of the COVID situation. He said, if we are to have another contest in the near future of our national existence, I predict that the dividing line will not be Mason and Dixon's, but patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition and ignorance on the other. Wow, that's perfect. Yeah. That would have been great to get in there. That was, what, a, what a great, uh, that was another, I'm sure you had that lined up. I what did, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you have, not only do you have to stand back for a lot of things. Anyway, thank you again. I, I very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, again, I really appreciate it. And uh, those were fantastic questions. You have just heard an interview with Rutgers University Professor of Anthropology, Alexander Hinton, about his latest book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., published by New York University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Thanks for listening and for supporting your listener-supported community radio, KZYX, KZYZ. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.